Thank you, Ryan. We've had our exercise this morning in standing, enjoying that time, and I want to send out a thank you to the welcome team who put some of those great sanitizers and wipes at the welcome station for us. We think about everything that's going on in our world with the coronavirus and the stock market and all the craziness that's out there. As we come to Hebrews, the Lord himself reminds us that we have a God who speaks. He doesn't remain silent, but he has spoken to us in his written word. But as we continue to read, the beauty is that he is not only a God who speaks, he's a God who listens and hears his children. But that's only because his son, Jesus Christ, came and died on the cross and paid the full penalty for our sins so that we might draw near to our Heavenly Father. So let us enjoy that privilege and let's come to him and draw near to a Father who loves us, who has spoken to us, who desires to hear our anxieties and our concerns and loves us as his own son. Heavenly Father, how different you are from the fathers, the fallen fathers of this earth, even the best. Try as we might, we cannot protect our children from the things of this world, whether it be a rogue virus, whether it be finances, whether it be natural disasters, whether it be the stock market, whether it be the things that go on in the classrooms at schools, try as we might, Lord. We cannot protect our children from these things. Even more so, Lord, we cannot protect our loved ones from the sin that so easily besets us and destroys us from within. But you, O oh Father, have loved us and you've shown your mercy and grace by speaking to us and not remaining silent, giving us your written word and your living word and coming in person, sending your Son, who is the full radiance of your glory, who is beautiful beyond measure and beyond understanding and who demonstrated that love and beauty and humility and holiness by dying for our sins and paying the penalty and the price and then ascending and sitting at your right hand to rule in justice and to rule in truth and to give grace and mercy to sinners in their time of need. And that's us, O oh Lord. So Lord Jesus, as we come to your word this morning, give us the help that we so desperately need and the help that only you can give that you would enable us by faith to fix our eyes upon you, the author and finisher of our faith, to consider you and how you endured, Lord Jesus, trials and tribulations even to the point of death, in love for the Father and love for us, in perfect faith and trust. Lord Jesus, would you enable us to see the beauty and greatness of who you are, the full radiance of the glory of God in and through you. And would you enable us to see how much you have loved us, you do love us, and you will continue to love us. In your name we pray, amen. 
Well, you know I like questions. And I probably drive my wife and children crazy with questions. So I'm going to share my love that I share with them with you all this morning. And I have two questions for us to consider this morning. Are you a Christian? You know, feel free to raise your hand. Are you a Christian? I am, okay. Don't be ashamed. And if, if you're not raising your hand, don't be ashamed either, okay? We love you, all right? But we need to be honest, right? Are you a Christian? Okay, if you raised your hand and said, yes, I am a Christian, then the question comes, well, what is a Christian? What is a Christian? What are you if that is indeed the case? If someone stops and asks you at your place of work, are you a Christian? Well, yes, I am. Well, guess what? Me too. Well, what is a Christian? Let me challenge you to go home this afternoon and take two minutes and to write that out. Because if you can't explain to someone else what a Christian is and you say you're a Christian, then where does that leave the rest of the world? Well, it leaves us with everybody else. Well, what is a Christian? Okay. According to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, and I'm starting with what the rest of the world thinks. This is by no means our standard of truth. But it helps to know what other people think Christians are. And it's certainly not less than this. A Christian is, according to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, a person who believes in the teachings of Jesus Christ. A person who believes in the teachings of Jesus Christ. Hey, is that you? Now, before we can say yes, we believe in the teachings of Jesus Christ, we need to know what those teachings are. And if we haven't read our Bibles lately, we do have to ask, do I really know what Jesus is saying before I sign off? And let me tell you, we're going to go through portions of the Sermon on the Mount this morning. You need to read that in the fine print before you're willing to sign off and say, I'm on board with this because it's, it's strong medicine. Okay, according to Mark Dever, a Christian is a follower or disciple of Jesus Christ. A follower or a disciple of Jesus Christ. Someone who is following Jesus Christ, someone who is a disciple. And so we have to ask ourselves again, if you raise your hand as a Christian, does that describe you and does that describe me? Does the testimony of your life, your marriage, your parenting, your family, your work, does it reflect the teachings of Jesus? Does it demonstrate that, not that you're perfect, but the ongoing pattern of your life, the direction of your life, is the same as Jesus? That indeed you are following in his footsteps as he is, are you that way? And before we say yes to those questions, there are two things that we need to seriously consider. Don't sign off on the dotted line. As Jesus would say, count the cost. Right? We need to seriously consider, first of all, the testimony of the entirety of our lives. Husbands, good thing to ask our wives. Wives, We can ask our husbands and we can ask those who are around us. And as you meet together in your Lagos small groups this week, I'd encourage you to ask the other men, what's the testimony of my life? 
Because that's what the local church is for and we're the ones who see one another, right? Does the testimony of my life demonstrate that I believe in the teachings, not some, but all of the teachings of Jesus? Does the testimony of my life indicate that I am following in the footsteps of Jesus? First consideration. Second consideration. What exactly did Jesus teach? Do I believe what he taught? Do I really believe what he taught? Am I going to put something in my life on the line for what Jesus taught? Especially his teaching about himself and about his word. Do we believe, do we follow, do we live not some of what Jesus teaches? Do we believe and follow and live all of what Jesus teaches? And our task this morning is to consider what Jesus taught. And very specifically what he taught first and foremost about himself and also what he taught about God's written word. And we're doing this so that we can each in our own hearts consider if indeed we do believe what he has to say. If we are indeed disciples of Jesus Christ. And we're doing this because it ties into our study that we've been doing on rightly understanding God's written word, especially the hard parts. Because the point that Jesus makes is that we cannot begin to rightly understand the Bible, God's written word, without him. Especially the hard parts, especially the uncomfortable parts, especially the passages like Ephesians 2.15. We need to know who Jesus is and we need to know what he has taught. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew 5. And if you would go to verse 17, and we will come to this portion to hear what Jesus has to say in his Sermon on the Mount. Specifically what he has to say about himself and who he is, and what he has to say about his relationship with God's written word, the Bible. Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Now, these words are what? As Matthew 4 establishes the beginning of discipleship, 
for any number of different sinners who answer the call, not because they're perfect, not because their lives are all together, not because they have incredible Bible knowledge. No, simply because they believe and have the gift of faith and they follow Jesus and they turn from their past lives. It's to these, the disciples, that Jesus calls to a mountain. And it's to these, the disciples, that Jesus specifically addresses his teaching, which is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And it's in this teaching that Jesus walks them through what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Or maybe in contemporary language, what a Christian looks like. This is the Sermon on the Mount. And this is one of the reasons why many actually refer to this as the disciples' discourse. To show specifically that this teaching that Jesus gives at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, which is foundational for what it means to be a Christian, is really all about discipleship. Hence, our question for our sermon today, are you a disciple? Well, Jesus shows us what it means to be a disciple. And in Matthew 5, 17, what we just read, Jesus reveals that true discipleship requires right thinking about Jesus and about God's written word. And that's our first point for this morning. True discipleship requires right thinking about both Jesus and his word. The history of the church has been filled with popes and pastors and professors and plenty of people as well who have great familiarity with Jesus, who can tell many stories about Jesus that are taken from the scriptures and great familiarity with the Bible. How it was written, where it was written, All the details. And yet they're thinking about Jesus and they're thinking about his word are all wrong. And the proof of this reality of those who know God's word well and yet they know it incorrectly and they think wrongly about it. The proof is in their lives. Their lives look nothing like what we read in God's written word, and their lives look nothing like Jesus. And that, brothers and sisters, is the ultimate test of discipleship. The ultimate test of discipleship. Do our lives look like Jesus? That's the whole purpose of discipleship. That's the whole purpose of following Jesus. Now, are we coming and saying to you, well, you need to be perfect and you need to walk on water and you need to cast out demons? No, we are not saying that. And hopefully in this series, we'll go on and see how we're to rightly understand the different parts of Scripture and put them in their proper place. And Jesus begins to show the disciples that. But in the big picture, the question is, is the pattern of your life and the direction of your life, is it increasingly looking like Jesus? That's really the testimony of whether you're reading his word correctly. I tell the brothers these day, this day and age, everybody knows me well enough when I ask how they're doing spiritually. Oh, Pastor Mark, I'm reading my Bible. 
Well, that could mean any number of different things. Because as James points out, Satan knows the Bible better than we do. He doesn't believe a lick. And he uses it in a very different way. It's not Bible knowledge, brothers and sisters. It's really Bible transformation. And in Matthew 5, 17, Jesus makes it explicitly clear. Discipleship requires right thinking about Jesus and about the scriptures. No ifs, ands, or buts. No other options. And the ultimate source and the ultimate authority for right thinking is not science or human reason or logic. Those will play their role. But the ultimate source and the ultimate authority is who? Jesus makes it clear in the Sermon on the Mount. It's him. Why? Because Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the wisdom of God. Jesus is the Logos. Jesus is the ultimate authority because he is the living word of God. Your intellect doesn't match his. Your understanding doesn't match his. And your righteousness doesn't. But he has come to give you an authority and a lordship that is definitive. And in Matthew 5, verse 17, Jesus does not come to the disciples and he does not suggest... He does not recommend, he does not propose how his disciples should think. With divine authority, as Lord of the universe, he commands his disciples how they are and how they are not to think. Don't tell me how to think, Pastor Mark. Don't tell me what to do. Fine. But Jesus can and Jesus does. And in verse 17, Jesus calls his disciples to submit their thinking to his authority and his correction. Do not think. Do not think. And the language that is used here is strong. The grammar that's used here implies do not even entertain the thought. There should be no possibility of any thoughts in your heart or your mind. Zero tolerance. I want to stop there for a minute. Are you a disciple of Jesus? Is your thinking submitted to his authority, to his word, and to his correction? Are you active in your life not thinking thoughts that are contrary to the teaching of Jesus? Are you active in monitoring your heart and considering what is false in your heart and your mind? And refusing and rejecting because they are hostile and contrary to the word of God. We live in an age where our lives are filled with social media, with websites, with entertainment, all of these different things. And I'm not coming out to you and saying, oh, it's sin to look at social media, it's sin to watch YouTube. No. But I am saying we need to consider what our hearts and minds are filled with. 
And we say, oh, no big deal. But brothers and sisters, I can tell you, so much discouragement in the church, so much lack of joy in the church, so much frustration, so many who struggle with sin, and they say, I'm not winning the battle in victory, and going for all sorts of crazy paths. And at the end of the day, when we sit down and talk and hear what's going on and what's in their heart and mind, there's so much that's filled with thoughts that are bits and pieces of Scripture that are taken out of context and that are far from the truth of what Christ has come to give. And God in love sent His Son so that we could set our heart on things above, so that we could think truth instead of lies. The Apostle Paul makes this point repeatedly to the different churches. Is Jesus really Lord Not just of your actions, but of your heart, your emotions, your thoughts, and your desires. We have to come out, brothers and sisters, and say many times, no. Many times the interactions will just tell me what I need to do to be saved. Or just tell me what I need to do, Pastor Mark, to make this right. How we think, how we feel, our hearts and desires... Very seldom does that play into the equation until things are really bad and God lets things run for a while and we realize, okay, it's not just my actions that God is calling into account. It's my thoughts and it's my heart. And if we care to see from the light of God's word, many times we'll see long before a conflict arises in a home, many times the thinking has been far from Christ and we haven't been obedient to him. The things that he's told us not to think about, we've been thinking about. That's why the Apostle Paul says, set your mind on the things that are above. And he talks about attacking and destroying deceitful desires in the heart. And he addresses this over and over again. And he, in the passage that Peter read for us this morning, talking about tearing down speculations, destroying fortresses, all these edifices of false thinking. And instead... He talks about having the mind of Christ and taking every thought captive. Brothers and sisters, when we get saved, yes, God gives us a new heart. He gives us a new desire. He gives us a new mind. He gives us an appetite for Christ. And hence, when someone's truly saved, a voracious appetite and desire to spend time in God's word, to spend time in prayer, to spend time with brothers and sisters, and to be fed and fed and fed and filled with the goodness of Christ. But there's still part of the flesh in that past life. And there are still patterns that are there that need to be destroyed. And they are dangerous and they are toxic. So Jesus comes to the disciples at the beginning of their discipleship and he commands them, do not think. And he does so in love. Because why? Because the truth of God sets us free. He's not being a dictator here. He's telling them to avoid what is destroying and what has destroyed their lives. Thinking of sin and the deceitful desires of our heart. And with this command, do not think. What Jesus is correcting is the thinking that he has come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now humor me here for a minute. I'm going to deal with Greek language this morning. I don't like to do that, but I do so because it makes a point and there's some subtleties here. There's Greek word translated here to abolish. Kataluso. It's a very, very strong word. It's a word that's used in Matthew 24, 26, and 27, talking about the tearing down of the temple, a demolishing of the temple, or the destruction of the human body. 
It's the idea of demolishing something, destroying something, tearing it down so it no longer exists. Taking a bulldozer to things. And this term here, the law and the prophets that Jesus is using, is a phrase that was used by Jews at that time to refer to the written word of God, the scripture. And the scripture, the graphe, the written word of God that Jesus was using at that time, was the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, what we call the Old Testament. Now, when most Americans hear that term, law, we tend to think of legislation, of rules and regulations. That's how we tend to think of it. And sometimes the law can refer to that. But we're wrong and mistaken many times when we assume when Jesus says the law, that he's specifically referring to the Ten Commandments or the rules or the decrees or the laws, the small l of the Old Testament. The term the law at this time commonly was understood to refer to God's written word. Specifically the Torah. The five books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy that were the foundation and the beginning of the Bible. That was the standard. And sometimes... They would even use, depending on the context, that term, the law, to refer to all of the scripture and all of the Old Testament. Sometimes, depending on the context, and you have to examine it carefully, it's a reference more narrowly to the Ten Commandments or the laws that are there. But the law, as the standard, refers to the Torah, God's instruction, God's expressed will that he gave in love to his people through the scriptures, through the written words, and through the prophets. And together, afterwards, that term, the prophets, is a term that's used to refer to the rest of the Old Testament canon. The law comes first, and then what follows are the prophets. Those words that were spoken by God through the mouths of his ambassadors, and were written down for the people of God. By his spokesman, the prophets. And we dealt with that two weeks ago. And together the law and prophets refers to the holy scriptures. God's written word. Now throughout the New Testament, as you read throughout the New Testament, what you will see is that Jesus, the Apostle Paul, the disciples, are repeatedly attacked by the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sanhedrin. They're repeatedly attacked and accused of trying to destroy and abolish and bulldoze the law. The law of Moses. We see this in Acts 6.13, Acts 18.13, Acts 21.28. And you'll recall this is the accusation that is brought against Stephen prior to being martyred. But brothers and sisters, this view and this thinking is not just limited the New Testament. Throughout the history of the church, many professing Christians have made similar arguments. And you may know some of them. The Old Testament is the law, the New Testament is grace. Because Jesus died on the cross, the law doesn't matter, so I can do whatever 
I want. Grace is everything. Jesus is everything. The gospel plus Jesus is everything. That means I can do whatever I want. That means I can ignore significant portions of scripture. And we see these types of thinking come up, especially in the area of Christian liberties, when brothers or sisters want to press home that there are things that they should be able to do when it's none of your business. But at the heart of many of these discussions and many of these arguments is the basic premise that because Jesus came and died on the cross and because he came to save us from our sin, there are portions of scripture that we can ignore or neglect or are not that important. And from Genesis onwards, this has been the lie of Satan and this has been the desire of the human heart that I can pick and choose the parts of God's word that are correct and good and I can leave all the rest. And this is exactly what the Pharisees and scribes did. They excelled in certain parts of God's law. And because they excelled in those areas and said these are the important areas, they continued to function as if they had a pass on everything else. So the question comes down, are you studying my Bible or your Bible? Well, here in verse 17, Jesus insists, that his disciples must rightly think not about some of God's word, but all of God's written word. When he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. He uses that word or. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Part of the argument that was made in the division at that time was that the law was more important than the prophets. The law is given by Moses. The law is the standard. The prophets are merely the exposition of the law. That's the gold standard. In fact, there were a group called the Sadducees who believed in the law but didn't put much credibility in the prophets. And so the debates went on. What's the most important part of Scripture? Who do you belong to? Where are you? Are you a Moses person? Are you a Jeremiah person? Are you Elijah person? Jesus comes and says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. And he shows the disciples the suggestion that he is trying to destroy, distort, or change any part of God's written word is a lie. And then... Jesus, as he always does, he destroys every lie with the truth. I have not come to abolish them. That's a reference to the entire written word of God at that time, the Old Testament scriptures, the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This brings us to our second point for this morning. Jesus insists there is only one way to think rightly about God's word. Jesus insists there is only one way to think rightly about God's word. Guess what? It's his way. We have a tendency when we bump into Bible truths that we don't like or that are hard to say, 
Brother, that's your interpretation. Brother, that's your opinion. But that's not the way I interpret this particular passage. Or that's not the way I see it. If I could have a dime or a dollar for every time I've heard that in the discussion of a hard passage of the Bible, I'd be a long way to paying for my kids' college and my retirement. Hear it all the time. But as we think of those things, especially as they come up on Christian liberties, what we're really saying is that there is more than one correct interpretation. There is more than one correct meaning. There is more than one correct understanding of who Jesus is or of a particular verse in the Bible. There are many meanings. And the interpretation that I assign to the text is just as valid as yours. Your word's as good as mine. It's whatever the Bible means to you personally. Brothers and sisters, this is known more honestly in the department of philosophy as pluralism. In Christian circles, we like to view this as tolerance. We agree to disagree. This is our way to keep peace. You know, there's all these different commentaries. There's all these different denominations. We're never going to agree on it. So you agree on yours. I'll agree on mine. But pluralism is the belief that there are many meanings and there are many truths and there are many authorities and they are all equally valid and they all have a place at the table. You have yours, I'll have mine. This is what makes for peace and this is what makes for tolerance. You can't insult mine and I can't insult yours because they're both equally valid. And what ends up happening, brothers and sisters, is... We professing Christians become functional Hindus. We're polytheists. We believe in many gods, many opinions. We believe in the opinion of my workplace. We believe in the opinion of the stock market. We believe in the opinion of the news. We believe in the opinion of whatever works for me right now, this moment, this minute. As we come back to Christ's word and a quick survey of Jesus' teaching, you just read through Jesus' teaching in the Gospels. Jesus never tolerates multiple interpretations of God's word. He always goes for the single meaning of God's written word. And he insists there's only one way to think rightly about him And God's written word. And that right way is his way. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew 16, 13. Jesus is talking once again to the disciples. He's shepherding them. And he says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Does he leave it there? Verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now part of the context here is when Peter says you are the Christ, he's using a language and a term that is based on the scriptures of the Old Testament. 
Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one promised by God, filled with the spirit of God, the descendant of David, the king. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Why? Because you got one of several right answers? No. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Brothers and sisters, fallen sinful minds tolerate many interpretations. But our Father who is in heaven, who does not lie, gives only one. He only gives one answer about who his Son is. He only gives one way to salvation. And as Paul writes in Ephesians, there is one Lord, there is one faith, there is one spirit, and there's one unity, and there's one church. And a true disciple looks to God, not himself, for the right way to think about Jesus and his written word. A true disciple looks to God, not himself, for the right way to think about Jesus and his written word. A true disciple looks to God, for answers. Because our answers aren't worth a lick. That's why Jesus came, brothers and sisters. If you had it all figured out, he wouldn't have had to come. And Why do we need to look to Jesus for the answers that we do not have, brothers and sisters? Because our minds are spiritually blind. We're filled with pride and deceitful desires and sin. And without God... And without his son, we are hopelessly lost and blind in the darkness. And God loves us so much that he was willing to send his only son. So that we would no longer remain in the darkness, but would come into the light. And in Matthew 5.17, Jesus gives the help his disciples so desperately need to think rightly about who Jesus is. And about his relationship with God's written word. Brothers and sisters, before you open your Bibles. Before you have your devotions. Before you come to a Bible study or hear a sermon. How often do you spend time coming to the Lord. And asking him, Lord, would you give me the answers that I need for my life and my family And my walk and my work this day. Would you open my eyes? How often do we come to the Lord and confess our sins that through our pride. And through our high esteem of our intellect and our understanding. We're blinded to the obvious of who Jesus is. What he's come to do and specifically how he is shepherding us in our lives. And brothers and sisters you know I've said this many times. Many times there are hard things that come into our lives. It's a love and a discipline from a father who loves us and cares for us that he's brought things into our lives that don't go away in a minute or a moment so that we would wrestle with what's in our hearts and see the lies and deceitful thinking that we're okay with because it allows us to make money, it allows us to do well in our jobs, and it allows us to get what we want for a season. But they become deep-seated patterns. Then those things need to go. 
that the Lord loves us so much, he is correcting and shepherding us inside out how to think rightly. And he's bringing us to that point where we're wrestling with the word of God. And, and brothers and sisters, we wrestle with the word of God most when life is hard. Well, Jesus is putting that before his disciples. And he says to them, and he gives them the help they need by saying to them, For I have not come to abolish them, the law or the prophets. But, and that term but is a strong adversative. It's to the opposite, to the contrary, 180 degrees. For I have not come to abolish them, but I have come to fulfill them. Jesus is insisting to the disciples that the only right way to understand him, the only right way to understand his gospel, the only right way to understand his written word is this. He is the Lord. And he has come to do what only God can do. He has come to fulfill not some, not part, not just the most important parts, He's come to fulfill all of God's written word. Now this word fulfilled is frequently misunderstood. And it plays a critical part in our understanding too of Ephesians 2, 15. We tend to think of this word fulfilled like we think of the word prophecy. Many times we think of it in a very narrow sense. Many times we think of prophecy as a prediction about the future. Now, that's included in prophecy, but that's not all of what prophecy is. And we tend to think of fulfillment, or what is fulfilled, as merely a carrying out of a particular promise or prediction. Nostradamus, in the year whenever there's going to be floods, and then when the floods come, that's fulfillment. But the word that's used here is plerao in Greek. In its broadest sense, it means to fill or to complete. To fill as if you're filling up a cup. Filling it with a liquid, wine or water. And filling it up to the top where it's supposed to be. The other sense is to complete. In the same way we would describe bringing a story to completion. And here Jesus is explaining to the disciples, he has come to fill the cup. He has come to bring God's story of redemption and salvation to completion. He's come to finish all that God has promised and planned and expressed in his written word. With this statement, Jesus is showing the disciples how they're to rightly read and think and understand the written word of God. God's written word, scripture, is not a random collection of religious writings. The Bible is not a random compilation of 66 books that was assembled by the church to defend their doctrine. And I say that and I belabor that because, brothers and sisters, many times that's how we function with the Bible. Pop it open. Look at a verse. Oh, here's the message from the Lord. Or I've got an anger problem. Or I've got this problem. So here's this verse. And here's this verse. Or I'm struggling and I need to be encouraged. Let me think on this positive verse. Now look, I don't want to diminish that. But when that's your bread and butter and that's your standard, the tendency of what we tend to do is to go for bits and pieces that work for us. 
And when we do that, who's the master and who's the interpreter and who's the Lord? It's us. It's the Bible according to me. I'm going to pick out the parts that work for me today because I'm having a hard day. And here's the gospel according to Mark. Well, that's a tendency of our own hearts because what we want is we want God's work to work for us. And brothers and sisters, when we go down that path, that's the heart and path of the prosperity gospel. How does this work for you? How does this give you a better life? And the Lord is against that, brothers and sisters. He gives zero tolerance for that use. And Jesus does here. Why? Because he wants you to know the fullness of who he is. And you can't appreciate the fullness of who he is until you appreciate the fullness of His word. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is showing the disciples here. God's written word is God's love letter to his people. And like all letters and like all stories, it has an intentional beginning and an intentional middle and an intentional end. All have been breathed out by the mouth of God. And it is the hand of Of God. That brings the perfect expression of his love to us through his written word. And it's because of this every part of scripture is essential to understanding. The whole and who Jesus is. The law is the beginning. Where God's word speaks the world into existence and demonstrates the power of his love through his word. The prophets are the middle portion of God's love letter to us. And who is the end? Jesus. Jesus is the climax. He's the conclusion. He's the completion of God's love letter to his people. You see this, brothers and sisters, throughout the New Testament. They understood it. They got it. They knew it. The disciples understood how they were to read their Bibles with a beginning, middle, and end. And not taking bits and pieces out of context. Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, what we read this morning, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by who? His son, Jesus Christ. A beginning, middle, and end. Romans 10.4, for Christ is the end of the law. Now, when Paul says Christ is the end of the law, that term end is telos. He's not coming to you and saying he is the one who's come and discarded the law and shut it down so you can do whatever you want. You've been forgiven, live it. No, that idea of tell us is he's the one who has brought the law to completion. He's perfectly finished what God began in the law. He's beautifully brought God's story to the end that God desires it to be. Now, those of you who know the Chin family, you know that we wrestle with the idolatry of basketball. So we repent of that on a regular basis. Those of you who know me, you know that I have a partiality for Canadian basketball players. And I also have a partiality for basketball teams that play team basketball rather than glory hogs who play hero ball. I set this by way of context, because many years ago, I enticed my wife to go to Israel on an alleged honeymoon. And it turned out to be a very difficult honeymoon at parts. 
And at the end of this honeymoon, we were in quite literally a flea-ridden hotel by the Sea of Galilee. It was hot, it was sweaty, there were cats around, and there was very little respite. And there was very little I could do to woo my honey and say this was the honeymoon that I had promised her. But then, alas, there was a gift from God and manna from heaven. On the little TV in our hotel room, they were playing NBA basketball. And they were playing a team that I love because they had a vertically and pigmented challenged Canadian basketball player who played team basketball. And he was playing against the team that I particularly loathed because they played hero ball. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is too good to be true. My wife and I, we can sit in the bed with our legs up and we can get an hour of respite. God's word? No, NBA basketball. You see how the Lord has had to humble me and bring me to repentance. So we're watching this basketball game and I watch the first quarter and I watch the second quarter. And the team that I love and the Canadian basketball player that I love are just getting destroyed and humiliated. So I tell my wife, please turn the TV off. I can't tolerate any more. My wife, who was neutral, said, no, you know, why don't you give it a chance? I said, no, this is far too painful. Trip's been too hard. Things have been too difficult. Now I can't see the people I love just get totally humiliated on TV. Enough. So we turned the TV off, went to bed. I shared my woes with some of the people who were on the trip the next morning. And they proceeded to tell me, what, you didn't watch the end? Pulled it out of the hat and they won. And I thought, what a loser am I? You know, I need to hear that more often. Praise the Lord for the humbling he gives. But brothers and sisters, you can't understand the story when all you know is the beginning and the middle. But the flip side is you can't appreciate the end unless you've seen the beginning and the middle. You need to see the whole game. And if you only see part and you only work with part, the tendency is for your emotions and your feelings and your expectations to interpret the scriptures for you and to come to the conclusions that you want or that you desire or that you fear. And you end up thinking wrongly about Jesus and you end up thinking wrongly about your life. Brothers and sisters, how often is that the source of discouragement in our homes, our marriages, and in our study of God's written word? That we fail to see the end and we fail to see the most beautiful part because we're content with a small part. And if I can push this sports illustration just a little bit without tempting you to idolatry of sports, I'm repenting. You pray for me, okay? Brothers and sisters, highlights are for fans who watch. But anybody who's ever played the game will tell you, if you're going to play the game, every second and every minute and every moment matters. When Jesus came, he did not come to watch. He came to live God's word. And when he called disciples to himself, he did not call men to come and watch and be spectators at church. Once a week, come in, hear a Bible study, hear something that's good and go out. The same way we watch Sports Center or we watch a basketball game. 
He called them to be like him and to share his life. To live like him. He called them to play. And because he called them to play, every minute and every moment and every second matters. And guess what? Every part of God's word matters. Because Jesus came to live the word of God. And he's called you to do the same. And this brings us to our final point this morning, which I will tie up with. True disciples believe that every letter of God's written word matters. True disciples believe that every letter of God's written word matters. Why? Because this is what Jesus teaches. And this is the only option that he gives to his disciples. And the testimony of Genesis through Revelation is that God has given us his love and his life through his word. Do you think God cares about his word, brothers and sisters? My word will not return to me void. He cares very much about his word. Do you think he cares about his written word? Yes, he cares very much about it. And getting God's word and his written word right, living God's written word right, is a matter of life or death. That's what Adam and Eve encountered in the, in the garden when the serpent came to them and said, has God really said? You can believe most of what God said, just there are some small parts here. Brothers and sisters, when it comes to God's written word, close is not good enough. Almost is not good enough. And we are not good enough. And this is why God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into our world and into our lives. Because nothing less than perfection is going to cut it and give life. And we can't do that. And that's why Jesus came. And so in Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, not the smallest letter, not the smallest stroke, the equivalent of dotting an I, will pass from the law, the written word of God, until all is accomplished. And Jesus here is telling his disciples, every last letter, every stroke of God's written word is essential and God cares about it. Because every letter and stroke has come from the mouth of God. And every letter and stroke points to Jesus and what he came to do. And the proof of how important every letter and stroke is to God is that Jesus came himself to fulfill all of it. And what did that require of Jesus, brothers and sisters? We're going to celebrate it in a few minutes. He died to fulfill all of that for you and for me. What does it mean to be a disciple, brothers and sisters? What does it mean to think rightly about Jesus? What does it mean to think rightly about his word? Are you a Christian? Are you a person who believes in the teachings of Jesus Christ? Are you a 
follower or disciple of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, is every word, every jot, every tittle, every dot and iota. It is important. Is it important? And it is, is it essential to you? Is it precious to you? If we're going to take the time to take it as seriously as Jesus is, or Jesus did, excuse me, we need to start now. And we need to spend time considering and reading and making it a priority to understand it, not in our way, but entirety, beginning, middle, and end, in the way in which Jesus did. Let me read you a portion to close from Mark Dever's book on discipleship. Makes the explanation that a Christian is a disciple, a follower of Jesus. And he says, Paul explained it in this way. He says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Jesus is not just our Savior. He is our Lord. And Paul explained it this way. He says, and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. What does it mean to die to self and live for him? Don Carson has said to die to self means to consider it better to die than to lust. To consider it better to die than to tell this falsehood. It's better to die than to consider... And then he says, you name the sin. The Christian life is the discipled life. It starts by becoming a disciple of Christ. And the connection Mark Dever is making the point is here is, Jesus shows what a disciple is. A disciple is like Jesus. And Jesus was willing to die to accomplish every last stroke and every dot of God's word. And he did so in love for you and for me because we're not able. What does he call us to do? You can't do it on your own, brothers and sisters. He does call us to repent and to turn from our pride, especially our pride of our intellect and our thoughts, and to turn to him for the help we need to rightly appreciate God's love and to rightly understand his word. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, you came to do what we could not do. Would you help us to be disciples in the truest sense of the word, with a heart by faith that appreciates you so much, we would rather die than to choose a path that leads away from you. This was the testimony of the Apostle Paul. This was the testimony of the disciples. Lord, one day, would you make that true by faith of us? In your name we pray, amen.